Our scripture today, as we continue our series, The Long and Winding Road, find ourselves in the book of Numbers, starting in chapter 13. Hear these words. The Lord spoke to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. Send one man from each ancestral tribe, each a chief among them. So Moses sent them out from the Paran Desert, according to the Lord's command. All the men were leaders among the Israelites. These are the names of the men whom Moses set out to explore the land. Moses changed the name of Hoshea, noon son, to Joshua. When Moses sent them out to explore the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the arid southern plain and into the mountains. You must inspect the land. What is it like? Are the people who live in it strong or weak? Few or many? Is the land in which they live good or bad? Are the towns in which they live camps or fortresses? Is the land rich or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Be courageous and bring back the land's fruit. It was the season of the first ripe grapes. They went up and explored the land from the Zin Desert to Rehob, near Lehebabeth. They went up into the arid southern plain and entered Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Telmai, the descendants of the Anakites, lived. Hebron was built seven years before Tanis in Egypt. Then they entered the cluster ravine, cut down from there a branch with one cluster of grapes and carried it on a pole between them. They also took pomegranates and figs. That place was called the cluster ravine because of the cluster of grapes that the Israelites cut down from there. They returned from exploring the land after 40 days. They went directly to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the Paran Desert at Kadesh. They brought back a report to them and to the entire community and showed them the land's fruit. Then they gave their report. We entered the land to which you sent us. It's actually full of milk and honey, and this is its fruit. There are, however, powerful people who live in the land. The cities have huge fortifications, and we even saw the descendants of the Anakites there. The Amalekites live in the land of the arid southern plain. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the mountains, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. Now Caleb calmed the people before Moses and said, we must go up and take possession of it because we are more than able to do it. But the men who went up with him said, we can't go up, up against the people because they are stronger than we. They started a rumor about the land they had explored, telling the Israelites, the land we crossed over to explore is a land that devours its residents. All the people we saw in it are huge men. We saw there the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We saw ourselves as grasshoppers, that's how we appeared to them. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. O Lord, let the words of our mouth, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Where do you see yourself in five years? We've all prepared for this question in any type of interview. For some reason, this is the gold standard of interview questions. Every interview committee has, to, has the person who feels like they just have to ask this one question. It's not just asked in corporate boardrooms or by managers hiring seasonal employees at Target. It was asked of me in my ordination interviews. Where do you see yourself in five years? The implication is that you need to know where your life is headed. This is the great goal of American existence. You get to control your sh and shape your own destiny. 
What are your hopes and dreams? Well, go get them and do whatever it takes to go and get them. We idolize as a culture everyone who has done just that. The athlete who beat the odds and concentrated only on their craft to become the greatest of all time. The Silicon Valley mogul who continually figures out what we need before we know we need it. As a culture, we believe strongly in Darwinism. To the victor go the spoils. So, person applying for middle management in corporate America, where do you see yourself in five years? The implication is this. Never, ever let momentum stop. Always be moving and working toward your goal, towards your five-year plan. Now, some of us are hardwired to win in this type of game. We have learned to succeed in this winner-take-all game, and we have the tools to do it. But here's the problem. Life just doesn't work that way. It doesn't always get better and better and better. Our careers, our families, our lives are more circuitous pathways than straight lines to success. Maybe then we can learn a thing or two from the Israelites today. For at the end of our story today, they find themselves on a truly long and winding road. Forty years in the wilderness. So today I want to ask this simple question. Why did it take so long for Israel to enter the promised land? The distance from the Red Sea to Canaan, the promised land, was about 250 miles. They should have been able to complete this trip in less than a month. So why does it take so long? Let's look again at the story that I just read. The Lord tells Moses to send out 12 men to go and explore the land. Now, we have often pictured these men as spies on a covert operation. But more so, these were leaders representing the 12 tribes of Israel who were to come back and offer the obvious report. The land is incredible. It is overflowing with bounty. Let's go and take it and live there just as God has promised. And the 12 do. They go and explore the land. They even have a cluster of grapes so big that it has to be carried between two poles for them to bring back to camp. I don't know about y'all. I've not seen grapes that big at the grocery store lately. So upon their return, the 12 explorers tell the Israelites about how the land is flowing with milk and honey and even this enormous grape cluster. But the people in this land, well, they are humongous. They are giants in the land in every direction. We'll never be able to fight them. And Caleb attempts to intercede. He says, we can take them. It's our time. But the other explorers prey on the people's fear, one-upping each other. This land, it, it devours its residents. No one will be safe there. And it's not just that the armies are big. They're actual, literal giants. We look like grasshoppers compared to them. That's a really good line. The problem of these explorers was not that they weren't telling the truth. There were enemies in the land and likely some relatives whom Goliath would eventually descend from. The problem was that they completely downplayed how good and inhabitable the land was. They ignored the bounty that God had promised them, instead focusing only on the negatives. Fear blinded this wilderness generation to God's leading. They completely forgot that God is with them. This forgetfulness was a pattern reported in this section of Numbers, in chapter 11, we heard it this way. 
says the riffraff among them had a strong craving. Even the Israelites cried again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we ate in Egypt for free. <laughs> for free. The, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Now our lives are wasting away. There is nothing but manna in front of us. The Israelites here are doing their patented complaining and grumbling. It has become a pattern of them in the wilderness that started right after the parting of the Red Sea. And Moses is distraught with this people. They demand meat in this case because they are bored of the manna cuisine that God is providing for them every single day on the ground. They recall the good old days of their slavery, retelling how glorious it used to be when they ate to their heart's content and the food was so wonderful. Moses can't really catch a break then because in the next chapter, it says that both Aaron, who's been his right-hand man the whole time, and Miriam, his prophet, his sister, start to turn on him too. They have a problem with the fact that the Lord is speaking to Moses and that he claims this authority, even though it was directly given to him by God. When the people grumble and complain, they forget God's covenant promise. They forget that God has bound God's very self to this people, bringing them through the Red Sea and out from under Pharaoh's hand. They forget about how God has provided for them bread on the ground each morning, water from a rock. They forget that God wants relationship with them and has committed his very presence to being in their midst with the tabernacle in the center of the community. God has provided all along and God is providing now. And maybe this is part of the dilemma for the people of Israel. They've grown used to God's provision. It's almost like they have gotten spoiled in the desert wilderness so far because they've just been along for the ride. And now we get to this crucial point. It's time to go up and invade Canaan and take the promised land for ourselves. This is what the Lord has promised. This is the day we've been waiting for and Israel's leaders back down. They don't want to take the bold steps necessary to enter the promised land. All of the leaders back down except for Joshua and Caleb. In chapter 14, starting in chapter Starting verse 6, right after the passage we read this morning, says this, But Joshua, Nun's son, and Caleb, Jephunneh's son, from those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite community, The land we crossed through to explore is an exceptionally good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us. It's a land that's full of milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are our prey. Their defense has deserted them, but the Lord is with us. So don't be afraid of them. But the entire community intended to stone Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb, you see, they remember that the Lord is with us. They tell the story that the explorers should have told. This is a good land and God will give it to us. Those giants in the land, they are our prey. For God is on our side. But how do the people respond to the truth? They want to stone Joshua and Caleb. The Lord, in return, wants to destroy the faithless people of Israel and start from scratch. Moses convinces God to refrain from that, and God does. He relents. But God does bring this consequence upon the people. They will, enter, they will not enter the promised land for 40 years until this entire generation of 20-year-olds and older 
has died off in the wilderness, they will all die except Joshua and Caleb. So that's the rationale given for why it took Israel so long to finally enter the promised land. But why? Why does God require this 40-year wilderness journey? Well, first, it's time for Israel to act. They have been told by God exactly what to do this whole time. Now they need to take ownership of their portion of the covenant. They need to follow God's leading into the promised land. Sometimes we have to take the next step out to where God has led us. We have to do the next right thing. Because Israel would not act upon faith in this moment, but instead cowered with fear, God gave them this 40-year sentence. That's one way to look at it. But also in another way, the 40-year wilderness period proves to be necessary for the people of Israel. For there are times when we are in the desert, feeling like it's 40 years. We all get to points in life where the interviewer asks us, where do you see yourself in five years? And we look back with a blank stare. We don't have the momentum anymore. We aren't trying to fill up every single day and just suck the marrow out of life. Maybe we feel a little bit stuck. Maybe we feel a little depressed. Maybe we just aren't sure where life is headed. And in this way, the 40 years in the wilderness are actually a guide for us. Sometimes the way forward is waiting to become a faithful people. Think about the number of times that Israel's wilderness wandering is upheld in Scripture and in Christian teaching. We are reminded that as Israel wandered, that God was always with them and in their midst. God didn't abandon them. We realize that Israel was not spiritually prepared to enter the promised land yet. They needed this period to become the type of people who could grow into the nation that God called them to be. There are times when we simply have to wait. As the psalmist wrote over and over, wait for the Lord, be strong, take courage, and wait for the Lord. I wait for the Lord, and in his word, I hope. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, more than those who watch for the morning. Waiting is the exact opposite of the momentum that we feel like we're supposed to have. If we sat in an interview and were asked, where do you see yourself in the next five years? And we said, waiting, we're not going to get the job. But here is where Israel finds itself, 40 years in the desert. 40 years that get echoed and referenced all throughout Scripture. Jesus will spend 40 days in the desert, facing the temptation of Satan head on. We echo this journey of preparation during the 40 days of Lent, preparing our hearts to receive the salvation story of Jesus' death and resurrection. I remember learning about monks and monasteries. And everything in my Christian understanding of the church is a business could not understand monks. What were these people doing living out in remote areas? Could they not have done some good for the community? Isn't praying all through the day kind of a waste of time? You're not supposed to say that, but everyone thinks it a little bit. Abba Moses, one of the desert fathers of the fourth century, a monk himself and a leader of monks, once said, go to your cell, which is your room, and your cell will teach you everything. In other words, wait on God. The witness of monasteries and convents in our culture is profound, 
It is good enough to wait on God. Stop chasing other things. I wonder, how are you at waiting on God? How have the last two years been for you when a lot of momentum has been stopped? What would it look like for you to wait on the Lord in the wilderness? Remember, God's presence never leaves us when we wait on him. Even when we feel like we don't see God, God never leaves us nor forsakes us even without a five-year plan. Thanks be to God. Amen.